You're listening to the American Soccer Analysis Show. Dude, you're, you're the Tommy McNamara of podcasting. It's great. Thank you. Wait, what? With your hosts, Ian Lamberson. If you say one more bad thing about Mike Grella, I'm going to cut you. And Harrison Crow. Patrick Mullins is what happens when you least expect it. Hello and yes, welcome to the American Soccer Analysis Show. I'm your host, Ian. With me as always, a man whose U.S. Cup is always open. It's Harrison Crow. Say hey to everybody, Harrison. <laughs> that's, that's, that was a really awkward one. I don't even remember. It's not a good one, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, but, uh, but you, you, you've been on such a streak, I'll, I'll let you have that one. Can I have that one? Thank you, thank you. Uh, we are, uh, of course, um, recording the night after some U.S. Open Cup matches, uh, the greatest uh, tournament in American soccer by virtue of being basically the only one. Uh, did you see any, any of that fun action last night, Harrison? Um, I caught some replays, but no, I wasn't feeling good. So <clears throat> I just pretty much, uh, I think as soon as work was at a stop, I like left, didn't even say anything to anybody, just like left, went directly to bed and slept for like three or four hours yeah. and then woke up at the tail end of like the Sounders game I didn't watch it. I just like saw that they tied it up in some miraculous fashion. And I was like, they don't deserve, I, I hope Sacramento comes back and win. And they did. Uh, so I felt justified by my snideness. Yeah. So you were lashing out at your, at your Sounders is what you're saying. Uh, yeah, I don't think it's lashing out. I, I mean, it just, it's realistic, right? Like you go on the road and, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but you know, it's not the greatest of chances uh, to start out. And the fact that, you know, you're going to start out conservative to begin with, uh, you're probably not going to, this is a winner, winner lose type game. There's, there's not a draw. There's not something that you can come away with. So it almost incentivizes being aggressive, uh, at least to start with on the tournament. Um, And then from there, but that's, I mean, that's my theory i'm sure other people have other theories that are really smart and intelligent well, that... um i'm trying to think i think there were a couple of mls teams that went out right there was colorado and seattle and dc new england went out dc barely got through right on a penalty shootout so uh you know what those if you're a fan of those teams you have less fixture congestion so congratulations uh perhaps we found brad friedel's weakness and it's the u.s open cup I don't think Brad Friedel has too many weaknesses, though. He's he's a pretty solid coach. Turns out, turns out everyone doubted him was quite quite wrong about all that. So, all right, let's turn our attention from the U.S. Open Cup uh, and turn it to a bigger cup in a in a segment I like to call the interesting stat of the week. This week, that comes from uh, Steve Fenn. Well, it doesn't really come from Steve Fenn. He just posted it on Twitter, and we're taking it. Uh, you can follow him at Stats Hunting. Uh, he's a very, very good follow if you're interested in soccer and statistics. And if you're listening to this show, I have every reason to assume that you are. Um, and what he's given us is a uh, kind of compiles the amount of what percentage of minutes um, played so far this season uh, is leaving from each team uh, heading to the World Cup. And this one's a little surprising, but the team that's losing the most to the World Cup, uh, it's uh, San Jose. Uh, 15.3% of their player minutes so far this year. Uh, 12,870 total, he has written down here. Uh, Nearly 2,000 of them from Godoy and Cummings alone. 
behind, just behind them, LAFC 15, 1%, Seattle 11%, although I think this might have been before anyone found out that Lodero was not making that squad, uh, so that might come back. Um, 7.8% from Minnesota, 7.4% from Vancouver, 6.9% from Orlando, 6.8% from the Galaxy, 6.8% from Houston, 6.7% from Red Bulls, New York, 5.8% from Portland, and 5.5% for NYCFC, and 0% for the other 12 clubs. Now, something that uh, our, our, our friend Jared pointed out, and uh, you know, uh, if listeners to the show, you've heard him uh, on here before, uh, was that this is a very uh, West-biased list, which is kind of interesting. I think that it has more to do with uh, climatolo- uh, climates and where players feel comfortable oh. playing. That would be my theory. Wow, that is a deep theory. So, <laughs> you think that people from like warmer I, I mean, climates just, you think are, players, are more drawn to Western Coast teams? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily Western Coast teams, but I think you look at where teams that are in the East right now. Atlanta is relatively new, and I think that they were rather particular with how they uh, brought in some of their players. And I think specifically they looked at players that probably weren't going to be gone a large chunk of time, which was smart, really smart. Um, Paraguay wasn't going to. Uh, qualify at least on this go around so uh, picking up Almiron was was an easy choice and you know um, anyways I think that majority of the Eastern Conference teams are all kind of uh, located in cold weather climates I I think that they're not necessarily a draw to some of those players Um, not to say it rules them out I just think that intuitively they want to play in warmer climates just I mean it's like you maybe not you but uh, I won't speak for you Go ahead. But, but, but. Okay. Three, uh, four and five on this list. Minnesota, Vancouver. Ahead of Orlando, L.A., Houston. Yeah, that, 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 that's true. That's true, too. Yeah, I'm, I'm I think just you're basically just looking at... No, yeah, we're all just spitballing here. I think it's interesting you don't see a team like Toronto as apparently one with 0% uh, people going to the World Cup, and that makes sense. There's always been that kind of... Um, strategy when like obtaining something to find a good guy from Argentina who could still be a phenomenal soccer player at MLS level and not be anywhere near that national team. Um, I think that, that that's been helpful to a lot of teams. But I also think, I don't know that if I'm a GM of, of a major league soccer team, and maybe I could be. I hear that Philadelphia job is open now. Um, I don't think that uh, I, I'm necessarily, it's a nice feature, but it's not going to make a break a decision for me, right? I don't know. Uh, you're talking about missing, you know, a good. You're talking about missing time with your team, but not just missing time, but that's time that you're playing somewhere else under a compressed schedule. Um, that's a lot of minutes to throw on in, on your legs in the middle of the season while missing games that are meaningful. So, I, I suppose maybe not annually. Is it important? But in these types of years, I'm sure it's worth considering. The flip side of that, though, is will you really have an opportunity to sign any of those players? Because those players are of such a high quality. You know, most of the time, we're not talking about some of these. uh, (laughs) Looking at this list, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Fair enough. But, I mean, look, and I I think that it's probably fair to say that while Annabel got – Godoy is not necessarily the best center midfielder in MLS. He's he's above average, 
right? Like he's oh, a, a, a solid piece certainly. for any team in this league. Maybe he's not a starter yeah, for any definitely. team, but he's a he's a solid piece. Yeah, yeah. You don't you don't you don't just throw. You don't. You wouldn't shake a stick at an Anibal Godoy. No, Godoy doesn't get. And I agree with you there. Yeah, he doesn't get kicked out of bed for crumbs. Uh, he, he's worth yeah. keeping around. And not only yeah, that, but yeah, he's yeah. a pretty flexible uh, player. Yeah. So, how do you think? Um, I I don't even sure. Like, what kind of are are we play, are, is MLS playing a lot of games during this time? I, I actually don't remember how long. The, they the have off the, during the group stages. Um, yeah. So that, MLS teams should have their players back by then. Well, yeah, but then you're also, I mean, it's not like players are coming immediately back, right? Uh, right thinking right, back right. to 2014 and how it worked with some of the U.S. players, I feel like there's at least a good two-week window to where they're coming back um, and they're getting reintegrated with their clubs. And not just reintegrated, but they're also doing um, you know, media and, and certain other different things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If Tim Howard, you know, was in Major League Soccer at that time, he would have had to do a lot of press after that Belgium game and probably wanted to take a couple of weeks and sort of recover from that. And I think that's for the best interest of the players um, overall. So um, do you see this uh, playing like a, a key factor here? It looks like a lot of these teams that are losing a lot are sort of teams that are kind of on the playoff bubble-ish or not really um, kind of in like a... a uh, uh, challenging for like a first place or anything like that here, with the exception of LAFC. I mean, you're yeah, 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 yeah. So but. LAFC is kind of in an interesting situation because their best defensive player, uh, maybe even their two, it, it is uh, uh, the fullback midfielder for Egypt, uh, Omar yeah, yeah, Gaber. Omar Gaber. Yeah, is he is he going? Was I, he selected? I don't actually remember. I don't know. The only thing um, I know so, about Egypt, uh, yeah. yeah. Obviously, Laurent Simon is going to is it got selected with Belgium, which is even a bigger deal because it looks like uh, Vincent uh, Company is he pulled uh, a groin while stretching. He had to be uh, taken off uh, at least I want to say in the second half, maybe it was even the first half of a game. Uh, yeah, uh, in a pregame against uh, or pre-World Cup uh, friendly against Portugal. So he is the backup. So right now, as it stands, uh, Laurent Simon is uh, starting def- uh, central defender for uh, Belgium, who is ranked sixth in the world and is one of the heavily uh, favored to, well, I shouldn't say heavily favored, but they are certainly a, a well-respected uh, yeah. team oh, within sure. this tournament. And they oh, will absolutely. most certainly, short of just completely falling on their face, should at least get past the group stage and very likely the round of 16. Yeah, that, that would be a minimum expectation for them. And certainly Simon got a little bit of time during the European Championships a while back, and uh, it's kind of cool. It's kind of a nice little feather in, in Major League Soccer's cap there to have some of these guys on a big stage. Um, I, uh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think you look at guys like San Jose is probably... I mean, that's mostly Gascadoy Cummings. LAFC definitely has hit hard, and they are kind of playing for that West Top spot. But Minnesota, they're going to lose, what, Calvo? Yeah, I don't think they have anybody besides Calvo. So, in Vancouver, you know, same way with Boston, that's obviously going to be, you know, a loss for them during that time if, if Costa Rica can make it out of the group stages, which I, you know, 
it, it's not guaranteed, but it's not something you can rule out either. Here's a question for you, and it just kind of popped in my head. Feel free right. to completely disregard it. Okay. What is the one team that is hoping their player has a big World Cup? Like, opportunity-wise. Oh, to sell on? Yeah. Man, that's a good question. There's not a lot of... Um, I don't see on this, like, a lot of young guys, really. I, I think a lot of these guys that are going to the World Cup are pretty much where they're at. Like, they don't really... Um, need. I guess I wish I had a full list here to see. Yeah, I mean, I know it's out there somewhere on the MLS.com. The one that the one that comes up is, uh, you know, Ronald Mat- uh, Matarita uh, for NYC is a fullback, yeah, but he's not even going to be starting. So it, it, it's really interesting. Um, there's a lot of players that are going to be involved, but there's not necessarily anything that MLS is going to be doing to really make money off of this. Right, and I think that that's kind of a takeaway um, in terms of where this league is at, and when this league really starts shifting, um, for me in my opinion, will be when you have uh, three, four teams that are you know really hoping for opportunities uh, for these young players, uh, not just so that they succeed and it looks well upon the organization, but so it also looks well and they have the opportunity to leverage them into opportunities for, you know, either in Europe or in uh, South America and Mexico, um, that there might be the opportunity to sell those players on. And that's that's really what, I mean, for me, that would be the, the start of the turn for MLS. Yeah, and I think that a lot of that, well, this year we would have seen some more examples of that, like Tyler Adams, you know, had had the United States actually, um, you know, made the tournament, which newsflash they they didn't they didn't make the tournament. They did. Um, they did, no. they did I've, not. I've heard that. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it would be cool if someone wrote an article about why I would like to read something like that. I, would, I think that you know, I I would actually would rather read fan fiction of how we'll go back to Harrison's fan fiction corner how the US won the 2018 World Cup alright Harrison's fan fiction corner on americansocceranalysis.com slash fanfic uh don't, don't go there. It's don't terrible. go to that URL. It's terrible. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm worried that someone put something there accidentally. <laughs> it will be like a very uh, a very disturbing thing to find you know, for somebody. I, I, and I don't think Drew probably likes me saying this, but I'll go ahead and say it. I didn't realize that we had all the expected goal data for uh, for 2014. Like he had him in hidden links. Hidden I don't links. Know if you went, I don't know links. if you went out there and looked at any of that stuff. I did not, no. Yeah, it, was kind of, it was some interesting stuff, interesting things. Maybe we'll. Maybe we'll. We'll post this for the public here as we get a little bit closer to this World Cup. Um, while we're talking sort of, uh, you know, uh, international soccer a little bit here, uh, you know, there was some big news this week in the U.S. men's national team scene. And I know we've kind of had conversations about this privately, but uh, we haven't really gotten into it too deep and we might not be able to here today. But uh, what's your take on this whole Ernie Stewart thing? <laughs> Jared wrote a really yeah, yeah, yeah. awesome, encompassing article, and I think um, he probably has the best perspective on it, just being uh, from Philly, having that intimate relation uh, with that team as a, as a fan and as uh, a supporter and somebody that um, had, probably has had a little, a few deeper conversations with their um, 
with some of the people in the organization there. That being said, um, my personal perspective perspective on it is that there's just not enough information right now. I mean, there's no way to judge Ernie Stewart on how he on how he does. There's nothing that says that he's going to do good. In fact, there's nothing even within the documentation that says he's going to hire the coach so much as he's going to lead the search. Um, so uh, there's a lot of uh, vague innuendo. Um, there's a lot of work with this department, work with that department. Um, there is no direct decision-making authority that is given or implied so it's really, it's kind of awkward. All it seems is like he's there to bring a level of uh, almost <laughs> just rah, rah, rah um, to, the, to the organization, right? He yeah. brings a level of energy and sets the tone and that's it. Like, well, and maybe accountability too. <laughs> like, well, how does he I, like? He can't keep. He has no. Well, he has I, no decision making. So right. how can you? How in any way can you hold people accountable if you don't? If you can't reprimand them? If you can't say, "Hey, if you're not doing X, then that's unsatisfactory within our organization, and that's not going to go well for your future." Well, somebody it, can fire him. I mean, and like if you if the U.S. comes out and starts doing poorly again, you know that might be a nice, easy, quick salve kind of scapegoat thing to do to be like, oh, they, we're getting a new GM in here. Even well, though, yeah, it, you're right. Like looking at that list, I, that I was just well, that doesn't. Yeah, that doesn't. I mean, yay. Okay, so we can fire Ernie Stewart if things don't go well. Is that the right move? Probably not. No, no, no. And I'm not saying it is. That's. I'm just saying it. Can you get scapegoat? It's one of the few things I can think about. Oh yeah, yeah. All right, fair enough. Yeah, right. I don't, yeah. I don't think it'll make a huge difference either way. I mean, looking at that list, like you said, um, you know, there's a lot of nice language in there, implementing a style of the team throughout. You know, all levels of U.S. development. Okay, is that really his thing? Even though, even though he has no jurisdiction on the youth national team? Yeah, uh, and then like creating prayer profiles uh, for each position. Uh, it almost feels like an like, analyst role. It almost feels like, an, like a, someone that's doing um, some sort of in-depth research and providing feedback. Right. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if that's his best role. Like if it was a decision making, and and I get from Jared's perspective, there's there's some things that he brought up as far as decision making that were maybe some worrisome trends or maybe some things that didn't really work out very well, and whether or not that implies less success going forward, I'm not sure. Um, that being said he doesn't have a great track record for some of the decision-making that he has done at Philadelphia. Not necessarily true over at, uh, um, yeah, in Netherlands, but three years is a a big chunk of time. And, you know, yeah, he's incorporated some younger players, uh, and given Jim Curtin those options, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I'm just not feeling it. I, I'm not feeling it at all. I, it doesn't make any difference to me whether it's Ernie Stewart or whether it's Garth Loggerway, to be perfectly honest, because I don't think either one of them are really um, are weighing too heavily into this and really making decisions. Yeah. 
Well, um, I mean, the other uh, the other side of this, obviously, is that this, I assume, opens up a role at the Philadelphia Union. And uh, there's certainly, I think, a place there for a, a visionary general manager, if, if such one exists and is available, um, to kind of come in and sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it, the Philadelphia has some some good young pieces. I, I think that there's 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 clay there to mold. Um, you know, it's not an empty bucket, but uh, I it wouldn't surprise me to see like a, a big change there in the off season. You know, one name that came up uh, already was Ali Curtis. Oh yeah, no, he's yeah, that that'd be fine. Uh, yeah, I think that that would be an excellent fit, and uh, I think that would spark a little bit of uh, a little bit more rivalry between New York and Philly. Not that there necessarily needs to be; it seems like it's a good rivalry. But you know, uh, uh, I think that that would be kind of a, a fun grab for Philadelphia because I think that it kind of lines up with where they're going. Um, and with that, I'm not sure if uh, if uh, Jim Curtin makes the <laughs> can. Uh, can make the cut for that. All right, before we uh, head into our deep topic, two more things kind of coming up this week that are interesting. Uh, we sort of saw this report a little while back, but um, Patrick Vieira, uh, again, this time getting a lot of confirmation from sources um, around Europe that, that, that it is a done deal, that he is going to be leaving New York City Football Club for Nice. Um, and at the same time, across town, state, whatever, rivals, uh, you know, lots and lots of whispers about uh, Jesse Marsh finally making that big jump to Europe uh, in that Red Bulls organization there. Um, this makes me kind of sad, you know? Yeah, it, it's... They're both really weird, right? Because both of those rumors started on the other side of the water. Yeah. And I'm always really weary of those. Oh, but yeah, yeah. neither have gone away. Yeah, well, and, I, in, it was flat out denied for Vieira, and I thought that was just a done deal as it was. And I'm, yeah, I'm even no, surprised to see it kind of come back this strong after that. Uh, kind of lends it a little more credence, in my opinion. Uh, agreed. No, I, I very much agree with that. Uh, Marsh is kind of a, a different um, thing. We all kind of knew that that was the next logical step, but it almost seemed like it's it's come a little bit sooner than expected. Um, from the American perspective, from MLS perspective, but maybe this was uh, just kind of the 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 deal all along, and it would make a lot of sense then if New York Red Bulls two goes ahead and brings their head coach up as well to take Marsh's spot. Um, yeah, that. Yeah, thank you, Monik. That that was kind of that's what I've seen rumored. That would make a lot of sense, especially with how Red Bulls kind of operate. Um, Everybody just kind of moves up in the chain. They continue doing what they're doing. They all kind of have a similar ethos throughout the organization. So, you know, not to say that different coaches don't implement different things, don't have different preferences, but, uh, yeah, it's it's really – that would be a, a less of a hit, the Red Bulls, uh, than losing Vieira to NYC, um, yeah, in my I, opinion. I, yeah, and I think that even you know NYCFC is part of City Football Group, and they obviously have a lot of um, a lot of things going on around the world. And I don't think that it would be too weird to see them shift somebody, you know, kind of over towards New York City FC. I, one name I heard that was interesting was uh, Mikhail Arteta, um, who's an assistant right now at Manchester City, and was reportedly in the running for the Arsenal job that that uh, you know ultimately did not go to him. Um, you know that would bring 
that would be a fascinating. Like that would be another great example of a, of, a, of of someone of kind of Vieira's um, sort of pedigree a little bit. Yeah, ilk that could kind of come in and uh, probably you know would be a very welcome, very 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 solid uh, tactician there as well. So it's a it's a fascinating time, and uh, I I will definitely miss those two coaches if they go. I've I've really been impressed by both of them so much for the last couple seasons and. Um, but this, I think this has to be looked at as ultimately a good thing in the, in the grand scheme of things because you want people to know they can come here and, and move up. This isn't, uh, this isn't a, a, an elephant graveyard. No, but I think that it also uh, should be an opportunity for other clubs to kind of look around and say, okay, who else is out there for our team? And do we have the best coach uh, for the system and the organization that we're trying to go move forward with. And I think that around the league, um, you know, that's that's definitely a question. Uh, definitely a question right now for the Galaxy. Um, Orlando City, you know, Jason Christ is kind of running out of uh, opportunities and chances right now. If Orlando City, for whatever reason, um, doesn't make the playoffs, um, that's, that's going to be a huge thing, you know, that they're going to be looking around. And then, um, you know, I kind of wonder how long Wilmer Cabrera is going to hang around down in Houston before he starts getting opportunities uh, internationally um, and abroad. He's, uh, <clears throat> he's certainly one to watch. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's move away from our, uh, our sad, perhaps, manager talk, our sad <laughs> hypothetical. Let's do a deep dive. Now, last week, me and you talking about soccer, as we do on this show, um, we and do. I said... And yeah, and I said something about how one of the problems that the LA Galaxy have right now is that they're not winning their home matches. And uh, we then talked about how important that was to teams in Major League Soccer. And uh, we did some reading, and it turns out it's a little bit important. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it turns out there's a, there's a pretty big home field advantage here uh, in this league. And... Um, I've always kind of wondered why that is, like what it is, and I I don't know if it's travel and time zones or just familiarity with the pitch. It, it, it feels intellectually to me like a team that's good at playing at home should also be good at playing other places. Like it's still a soccer field. It's still a soccer ball. It's the same rules, theoretically. Um, you know, just because the pitch is like five yards shorter, does that really like throw everything into that much disarray? I mean, that's certainly tactics, right? Um, yeah. And when you have a team, you know, let's you, you threw down a, the, the shorter field. So intrinsically, people are going to think of NYC. But also for some of us, you know, back even five years ago, that was Houston, right? Houston yeah. had a really small dimensional pitch um, that really worked pretty well for what they did with just lobbing balls in from uh, via Brad Davis's left foot. Um, and, and that worked out pretty well. It, I kind of balked to to kind of rewind a little bit. I kind of balked at at your idea. You you threw it out and was like, it is imperative that they're winning at home. I was a little bit less um, of the you have to win at home. It's kind of going through the data. Teams play much better at home, like unequivocally. Uh, going through our data set, there are four teams out of a hundred and I can look up and get you the exact number. How many teams there? Say, 
160. So out of 160 total teams going back to 2011, there are all of four who have fewer that have a worse expected goal differential at home than on the road, which is absolutely crazy to me. Wow. Um, I usually would enjoy playing a guessing game here, but I, I have no idea. Yeah, well, so, okay, so three of those teams come actually from 2018, and I think that... Really? Um, right, and so I actually real fast want to jump on that. There's a lot of uh, <laughs> heavy swinging, both uh, for home teams and then for away teams, in terms of how our data skews, and I think that's really, uh, you know, foot-stomping. This is why we really want to wait to let expected goals kind of climb it, uh, hit the their climate, mm-hmm. if you will, um, really just to let them mature. And most of the time, that's about 14 to 15 games. I know some sometimes you can start counting, looking at stuff about 12 games out. Um, you know, not, I mean, look, what Seattle, D.C., um, if want to say maybe Minnesota, they have like eight games that they've played. So there's still a lot of teams that, uh, you know, with – um, an unbalanced schedule. We're we're not there yet, really, with um, with understanding where this season's kind of going f- as a whole and expected goals, right? So as and this is kind of underpinned by seeing three of the four teams that you know have ever had a worse home expected goal differential than on the road, and so taking those. Three teams for 2018, which are Columbus, Gal- uh, Galaxy, and DC United. Really not surprising there. Um, uh, at least yeah, for two of those. Columbus, we can well, talk DC about. United hasn't, yeah, DC United hasn't played a lot of home games. Well, yeah, not real true home games. Like We can use quotation marks, right? They've played in and around the, the Maryland, DC uh, metro area. Yeah. Um, so that it kind of explains that uh, LA Galaxy is kind of an interesting um, one just from a lot of people guessed that this team from uh, from the last few years was the 2017 Galaxy. It's not. Uh, but it's funny that the 2018 Galaxy show up here because uh, I don't think a lot of teams, a lot of people have would have thought that. Yeah. Columbus. um Columbus has a positive expected goal differential, both home and away. It just so happens that it's higher on the road than it is at home. Um, and, and so it's, it's less about that they're bad, that they've been bad at home or they've, then they've been really good on the road. Right. Uh, really not the case for either DC United or, uh, LA galaxy. Uh, the team from yesteryear that has this terrible, and, and this really would come of no surprise from anybody, um, the 2014 Chivas USA. Oh, yes, Chivas. Ah, Chivas, Chivas, Chivas. The answer, I, it, to many, the answer to many bad trivia questions. Oh, really? I mean, it really is. The yeah. 2014 Chivas is probably the worst team in MLS history. I know a lot of people will point to um, DC United, um, especially 2010 DC United. I don't have a lot of data on them. I don't have a lot of data on other teams. What I know is 2014 Chivas USA was terabad. Um, 
Poor man's so bad. They're poor man's so bad. (laughs) Right. So, and, you know, we could probably all throw out a bunch of teams that that we dislike. They were um, just epically bad at home. Negative uh, 3-5-2. Uh, expected goal differential, so almost a half a goal. They were almost seeding half a goal um, in expected goals. Could you make a case maybe that CUSUSA never really had a home stadium? I mean, that, that's, I wouldn't, that's I wouldn't say that because but... I, I, get the, I get the joke. Um, yeah. But at the same time, you got to think that there were some really good Chivas USA teams, and I think it does That's them a true. disservice. That's true. Um, you know, Bob Bradley, Brad Guzon, uh, Sasha Kluschen, you know, they had some really good clubs. Bornstein. Um, yeah, Jonathan Bornstein, um, who's going and playing in Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah, they have some really good clubs, and I think it does them a disservice to kind of look on their history and just remember these bad teams. They were really bad at the end, um, and, and part of that was both the way that they were being managed, um, and I think it also is a reflection of how that ownership was just basically just trying to get out of MLS in general. Yeah, yeah, no, it was it was very clear by the end that everything that happened is what needed to happen, and uh, you know now they got a new team that they like a lot better, so. But okay. going back, I mean, you're basically looking at um, roughly 95% of home teams just play intrinsically better at home um, in MLS. And that shouldn't come as a shock necessarily, but I think it does validate some of these coaches that get that play really conservative on the road. Yeah. Um, and I know I kind of I've railed about about it on on Twitter for different coaches that they go and they play ultra conservative on the road. This is probably a real case to be made that playing for one point, um, you know, probably makes some sense. You know, especially it, when you you're going to be really close to making the playoffs and every point matters, right? Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, I think it's kind of funny that maybe not funny, but I, one thing I've noticed is that when you watch, if you're if you follow if you follow any like European leagues, uh, generally speaking, you know, Americans tend to kind of gravitate towards the bigger sides in those countries, and that's understandable. They're the ones that you know make waves that we hear about over here. Those people follow Manchester United, or yeah, or, or Liverpool, or Real Madrid, or or Barcelona, or Bayern Munich, or even Borussia Dortmund. You know, these are teams that are so, are, are so much ahead often of uh, the rest of the pack, you know, outside of their little clump of four or five teams, um, they, they really do have to go and win games on the road. Like, they can't just be happy with draws away to Stoke City or Wigan. You know, like, they're expected, nonetheless, to kind of overcome this whole difference. Plus, there's a lot less travel um, involved in that, I think, uh, when you kind of look at, uh, <clears throat> you know, how far, like, t- like, England's like the size of Wisconsin. So, like, it, you know, it's just a different... It's a different kind of thing. So I, I think that might contribute more towards why what do you, you see what a little saying? bit less of it. What am I saying? Yeah, what are you saying? I'm just saying that like Major League Soccer teams aren't... Um, the difference between <laughs> the best team and the worst team isn't so much one that I would expect 
you know, this one team to win every game home or away. And it's a, it's a, it's a shocking thing that happens if they, if they lose points to one of these other teams on the road. One thing, though, that I will say watching, and I'll, I'll point this to Atlanta, is they have they definitely don't change their tactics home or away. Yeah. I feel like they're very aggressive on the road, and that kind of comes out. So if you look at the all-time away, and granted, they only have two seasons, <clears throat> they actually are one of two teams that has a positive expected goal differential. Can, do, do you think you could name that second team? Over the last two seasons? Oh, it's LAFC, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, the, the, this is all time, but LAFC and Atlanta are the only two teams uh, of all time to have expected goal differential uh, away uh, to be in the positive. Um, so, which, again, isn't surprising. SKC is uh, the lowest um, that has played eight seasons, which... Um, I think that just kind of speaks to the fact that they're kind of a, a grind uh, and grit team. Okay, sure, sure. Does that, it, I mean, would you agree? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's just kind of like my thought process for it. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're evolving, but, but I, I think there was a time when they definitely were. Yeah, no, that's probably fair, especially this season. Of all seasons, they're very much uh, a much more entertaining attacking-based team. Um, but yeah. Uh, LA Galaxy being next on the list, Columbus, and then Toronto. Toronto. Well, now, Toronto had an interesting year. It was back in 2016. Uh, they had a similar situation uh, where they started out eight matches on the road. And um, a lot of people thought that that would kind of favor them towards a supporter shield race because they had all these kind of home gains banked towards the back half of the season. Um, it didn't actually turn out like that, even though they did go on, of course, to make the MLS Cup final that year. Uh, and we see DC doing that now, and LAFC also having that going on too earlier this year. You know, they kind of started all on the road. Uh, have you found like any sort of inclination that like backloading home games is any kind of benefit to teams? I don't know about backloading, but we've kind of found that like <clears throat> that season specifically, and then there's also a second one, the Kansas City Wizards, which we'll right. talk about in a second. Um, where they played just a string of games, and both teams were actually relatively successful. Um, so looking at um, Toronto's first eight games, they had a plus expected goal differential on the road. They had a PDO of 10-24, which basically means they have luck in their favor, but um, Can you go ahead and explain for people what PDO is? I don't think we've talked about that much here on the show. Yeah. Yeah, PDO is kind of it's basically a metric of luck. If that okay. makes if that makes sense, it it has to do with saves and with uh, save percentage and shot percentage. Uh, so basically, if you're saving more um, than you're scoring uh, and basically uh, converting then you're going to have a positive PDO. If you're going to basically be letting a lot of uh, a lot of shots in, but you're not going to also be scoring a lot and converting a lot, it's going to be uh, a negative uh, PDO, which is un- less than 1,000. Intrinsically, it kind of seems to hover about at the 1,000 level. So... Um, there, James, I believe it's James Grayson that's done a lot of work with looking at PDO, both in hockey 
and in uh, and then bringing it to soccer, which is kind of where I first saw it being utilized. Um, but yeah, um, that's that's a really crappy way of explaining. Yeah. It's uh, just shooting percentage, save percentage type. Shooting percentage, save percentage. Maybe we'll uh, we'll, we'll uh, commission one of our, our our lovely staff members of American Soccer Analysis to do a do a good breakdown of that on the site. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's. Uh, I know that uh, Statbomb has uh, a great article uh, explaining it, uh, especially. And then you can just do uh, a look up on James Grayson, who who has a nice. Um, I th- believe he still has a blog active, uh, but he was. Uh, he's kind of one of the first guys that I started reading about uh, when it comes to uh, soccer analytics back in uh, two that 2011. So. There you go. All right. Well, sorry to derail you there, but 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 go ahead. No, no. Uh, so, but with Toronto, we just saw all these things that basically said they were an above average team, not just above average attackers, not just a really good defense, but they went out, they played on the road, and they were really good for those eight straight games. Um, and I th- think. Uh, to me, that kind of makes me question the whole paradigm of is it that people get comfortable and or is it the fact that just good teams play good on the road? You know, like intrinsically, if you're a good team, you're probably going to play good on the on the road, right? Yeah, it seems like it. But we, we don't know. But I think kind of what we're seeing is that that's not necessarily the case. Right, exactly. And so, and going back to Sporting Kansas City, they had a very similar situation to where they basically came out uh, slightly ahead on their expected goal difference. Um, and this over, is back in 2011? Yeah, correct. Okay. Um, they had a slightly, um, I believe they had, uh, oh, they had a negative, I'm sorry. They had. Uh, an expected goal differential of uh, two tenths, <laughs> wow. which really, I mean, they're a very even team. They yeah. averaged uh, one point a game that year on the road. Um, and then at home, conversely, they were a plus expected goal differential team. They were actually really good. And I think that was kind of really the start um, and the, the twist that we really saw that Sporting Kansas City was going to be um, – a really strong team going forward. Yeah, that was actually the year they became Sporting Kansas City um, instead of the the Wizards, I believe, and that was also the, the the stadium thing. And they played ten games on the road to start the season, which is uh, for all you record nerds out there is is the longest road uh, stand road stretch road trip. Let's go with road trip uh, in Major League Soccer history. So there you go. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I thought that we'd talk about, I, I, ex- I fully expected to talk uh, about four teams, right? Um, I told you this beforehand, Portland, uh, Houston, the two names are escaping me. Portland uh, basically has, you know, they have an amazing crowd and everybody talks about how uh, tough it is to go to Portland. And what was really surprising to me was to see that they're a really average home team. Um, over the years. Uh, so they average about 1.9 points per game at home. Um, that's, you know, that's a little bit above average for uh, for what we're seeing. I would have thought differently. Yeah, if you had just asked me, I would have said that that was probably one of the teams with the highest um, <clears throat> kind of like homestand, you know, records. But okay, 1.9 is not awful, though. They, that's That's good. Two points a game is great. 
Houston's kind of been another team that it's just always been really tough. Uh, so all time, they have uh, basically an expected goal differential of 4.17, which is really high um, at home. And that's, you got to think, they've not been a good team. What, they had a three-year spurt span, yeah. if you will, that they were kind of, uh, they were a below average team. And yeah, for, sure. for them to be that high up there, it, it was really surprising. Um, the one team that I didn't expect, um, I expected to talk about NYC, um, but instead the team that looked even better was actually uh, New York Red Bulls, who actually average a greater amount of points per game. At home. Interesting. At home. They average 2.1, whereas NYC averages just a flat 2. Now, um, I kind of think, like, um, just just uh, offhandedly about teams like this. You know, once you, I'm, it, it, of course they're not, and that's disappointing because one of the teams with, like, the biggest built-in home field advantages is Colorado uh, with the altitude because that really does mess with you. And um, it's crazy to me that they haven't been able to be – I mean, I guess that year they almost won the supporters' shield. They probably were really strong at home, but yeah, that, but I don't, I don't speaking, think that. that yeah, yeah, it's not consistent, and yeah. I think that's kind of what we would expect, right? We yeah. would expect there to be some consistency. One team that's really good at home that uh, in that vein is RSL. They have the uh, over eight seasons. They have averaged over two points a game. They're only one of four. Uh, they're only one of two teams with the full eight seasons played that has that have done that. I remember them having like a 20-something game unbeaten streak at home for, for a while. Uh, it was crazy. Like, they were like, that was really a fortress back in their heyday. Like, it stretched multiple seasons. And I, I think I called it Portland average. Uh, <laughs> they, they do sit, uh, I think, sixth for uh, points at home. Not so bad. points not per bad. game. Yeah. Not, not, not average, but, but not, not as elite as I would have thought they would be. Um, kind of in that that sort of like fortress like reputation that they have there, right? And they're they're sitting twelfth overall in expected goal differential, so that's kind of where that uh, the thought process yeah, of average, sense. and that's out of twenty four teams, so yeah. that's that's kind of where I. So Portland fans, I know we don't talk enough about your team, especially with doing well this year. Um, please don't send more hate mail, Drew. Please don't send me personal hate mail, and um, <laughs> still edit my articles. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I expect some reading material to be to be sent to me, and that's fine. I I, I, I look forward to it to, to learning more. Um, no, I've been to Portland. It's it's phenomenal. It's it's a it's a crazy atmosphere, and it's um yeah. I, it's easy. I, I definitely would have thought just based on my experiences there that that, that it was uh, one of the hardest places to play. And I think we see in that survey every year that gets done. I don't throw a lot of weight behind that, uh, but Portland's consistently listed as one of the more hostile <laughs> environments for a, uh, a visiting team. So um, no doubt about that there. Um, all right. Anything else? No, man. I, that's about it. Um, that's it. I'm sure we could we could probably bludgeon people to death with, you know, talking about expected goal differential uh, at home and on the road. But uh, the the real crux of it is that uh, good teams win at home and uh, bad teams um, can still be uh, relatively respectable at home. Yeah. So do we agree that it's important to win your home games in Major League Soccer? Yes, we agree. We agree. All right. You know what? That's it. We're done today. Short show. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, short week. Um, 
thank you for listening. Uh, we will be back next week, of course. Um, I am your host, Ian. You can find me on Twitter at a handle for Ian uh, or on the weekends uh, if you want to see commentary and match gifts from me at Total MLS. I do that there. Harrison can be found on Twitter at Harrison underscore Crow. Please follow uh, American Soccer Analysis on Twitter. It's at Analysis Evolved. It's a great account. Super snarky. People love it. See a lot of likes and retweets on that account. Uh, visit the website, www.americansocceranalysis.com. Got some really good content up again. I know I say that every week, but every week it just keeps getting better. Uh, weekly stuff from me, from Harrison, from Eric. Uh, Jared, just put some things down. We'll, we'll probably try to get a link to Jared's piece on Ernie Stewart, too, somewhere so that people can see that, because that really was a good piece, um, even though it's not hosted on our site. Uh, Joseph Lowry doing a thing, Harrison Ham doing a thing uh, every week. So, again, lots of content. Visit every day if you can. Click on as much as possible. We'd appreciate it. Uh, thank you once more. Uh, we, we can't say enough how much we appreciate you listening. Uh, we'll see you next week, and until then, enjoy the soccer.